So we are, uh, we're in the Gospel of John. We're looking at the, the second part of the resurrection. Last week, um, Brian preached the first half of the resurrection story in John. It was, uh, and um, wow, it was a great sermon, great uh, service last week. Last week, we talked about, or, or Brian taught us about how uh, the appearance of the empty grave and why that's so important in the Christian faith that John and Peter had gone into the tomb. Uh, Mary Magdalene had come first, seen the stone rolled away. John and Peter, the apostles, had gone into the tomb and seen and seen evidence that, that showed that this was not a grave robbing. This was not the theft of a body, but something far more important. It said even John left with the first elements, the first light of faith John had left. And so we're going to pick that story up where we left off last week, this week, Mary Magdalene, John and Peter have run off, and Mary Magdalene uh, is left standing out in front of the grave, weeping. She's the first human being, think about this, she is the first human being to see the risen Lord. That's on purpose. Mary Magdalene loved Jesus with her whole heart, and I hope that we see uh, that we're a lot like her today. And I hope that we see the comfort that Jesus offers her is the same comfort that it offers us. So would you please, if you could, please stand one last time out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is uh, John chapter 20, verse 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at his head and one at his feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would be with us and teach us today. Lord, this is, we live, we are fallen creatures in a fallen world, and there's much sorrow and grief, but there's also great joy in the knowledge of you and who you are, what you've done for us, Lord. So fill our hearts today with rejoicing as we study your word, as you speak to us out of it. Lord, give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I came home from work a few weeks ago, and my middle, my middle daughter, Victoria, was absolutely inconsolable in tears, locked in her room. I tried to ask my wife what was going on with her. She she didn't know. She just knew that she was just crying, crying, crying. 
like the world was ending and she had locked herself in her room. So I went in there and tried to like coax out of her, what's wrong, what's wrong, Tori? And she wouldn't say anything. So I just sat with her for a little bit, gave her a big hug and she snuggled up to me. And after 10 minutes or so, after she had calmed down and had some space, the truth started to bubble out and she said, I hate my hair. You know, Toria, she was, she was born with a Massachusetts accent. We don't know where it came from, but that's how she talks. <laughs> the child care workers used to think she was English. She was an English child. Which, yeah. Anyway, she, I finally got it out of her. I hate my hair. And I said, what? What do, you, what do you hate about your hair, Toria? It's beautiful. She wouldn't tell me. She just cried and cried. And eventually I got it out of her. When the wind blows, her hair would go in her face, and it was annoying. <laughs> and she hated her hair, and she really needed some new headbands. <laughs> I think that was the bottom line. It was, a big, it was probably a big manipulation. She's pretty smart like that. But that was the bottom. The bottom line was she was, uh, honestly, at the tender age of five, she was suffering the effects of the curse in the form of the bad hair day. It's already on us. It's already upon us. And so, you know, it would be easy for me as her dad to be like, what? That's it? That's what you're upset about? Let me tell you about my life. You know? (laughs) She started grumbling about my life to her. But the the reality is is, is that in her five-year-old world, that was a real crisis. That was real hardship. In her limited experience of, of life and of the world, this was actually a really big deal. And she was so unconsolable about it, she couldn't even reach out for help. I had to go to her. And then, uh, you know, trying to reason with her didn't help. She needed space. She needed patience. She needed compassion. Something that my kids are teaching me these things about how to deal with people, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I'm learning slowly that what she needed first, before reasoning through it, before trying to teach her how to pull herself up by her bootstraps, was to, be, was to have comfort, was patience, was space for her to feel safe, for the truth to then come out, for then things to happen. Uh, and then after that, we got it out. And uh, you know, we went out, we had a yummy dinner, we ate a bunch of mochi ball ice creams, and we watched a movie, and we played, and we read Bibles, and we read stories, and all of a sudden, within the course of an hour, she had been transported out of this narrow, limited experience of the world as just, just an awful place into the realization that the world was much bigger, much more beautiful, and much more wonderful than she had ever imagined. And it happened just like that. So what's the point? Why am I telling you stories about my kids? <laughs> because, I, you know, the great thing about kids is they also they teach you so much about yourself, too. We can be like this. We can be the same way. And Mary, we see Mary is inconsolable before the grave, and it's not because her sorrow is not real. For her, it is an excruciatingly painful thing. She has lost the most treasured thing to her in all the world. She is truly grieving. She is truly sorrowing. Uh, and and for, what that teaches us is from our perspective, from our limited world experience, we know that as fallen creatures in the fallen world, there is much earthly sorrow and grief in the world. 
But what the Holy Spirit wants us to know, what Jesus wants us to know through this passage is that what he wants to teach us is that as real as sorrow is, and we don't want to deny the reality of that as some religions try to do, as real as sorrowing, as real as grief is in the world, for us it's not the last word. It's not the ultimate word. Uh, As creatures, we are creatures who have been adopted as children into the family of God. And so there is a much bigger reality. The world is much bigger and more beautiful than we can possibly imagine right now. Uh, And we are now, God, as children of God, we are being brought into it, brought into a part of that world and growing into it. And Jesus is able to be with us and to comfort us and to see our way through as we make our way into it. That's the big idea of this passage. The big idea, the one thing that Holy Spirit wants us to know more than anything is that Jesus comes to us in our earthly sorrow with unbreakable promises of everlasting joy. Jesus comes to us in our earthly sorrow with unbreakable promises of everlasting joy. And we're going to look at that one one part at a time. First, I'm going to do the second part first, in our earthly sorrow. In our earthly sorrow. Let's read uh, verses 11 through 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. The big question everybody asks about this particular part of the passage is why is Mary still weeping? They, they, they look at everything that's happened up to this point. They, they, we know from reading last week that John, the stone has been rolled away that John and Peter had gone into the grave and they had come out seeing the folded grave clothes, carefully folded, obviously not the work of a grave robber. And it says that John personally himself came to the first understanding, the first light of faith that something extra special had just happened, the resurrection. Uh, and and, and are, you know, are we to believe, it says that they went back to their homes, but are we to believe that John just left and didn't say anything to Mary, that they just ran out of the tomb leaving Mary to cry? That doesn't seem very possible. And so why having that knowledge shared with her, why is she still weeping? She also was with the Lord. She heard the teaching of the Lord over and over again as part of that inner circle that he promised, he pro- proclaimed that I will die and then three days later I'll raise, rise from the dead. The Bible actually treats in the New Testament, it treats the women as being sharper than the men disciples and coming to understand what this means sooner. Um, and then she looks and then she bends down and she looks in the tomb and what does she see? Angels. Two of them. I think that would be a, a pretty good hint, you know? Hey, something special has happened. There are angels where the Lord's body was laying. And they ask her, they, again, woman, why are you weeping? You know, Brian nailed it on the head last week talking about that Mary was experiencing a grief beyond measure. Jesus was the most beautiful thing she had ever seen and it had been taken away from her. The one hope that she ever really had had been extinguished and she is experiencing the depths of grief. When we look at the disciples, most of the disciples, we see that they're still wrapped up in this idea of earthly kingdom and, and, and earthly treasure and being 
part of Christ's kingdom on earth when he kicks the Romans out. And so when they're, they're thinking that they have lost Jesus plus fame and fortune, uh, they're grieving personal loss and the loss of Jesus. But Mary is portrayed as really mainly just grieving the loss of Jesus. She's just lost Jesus and it's crushing to her. As I was reading through this, you know, it, when you see her, her, when you read her responses uh, to the angels, the responses to, the, to, to, the, to Jesus himself too, she is literally grasping at straws. She knows Jesus is dead. She knows that she's lost Jesus, but what she wants is to just be able to grab onto anything possibly left of him for as long as she possibly can. When she answers, when she answers Jesus, who she thinks is the gardener, it's when she says, you know, tell me where you laid him, it's really an emphatic statement. She's like, would you please tell me right now where you've put him? And then she follows up with that, up with saying, and I will go and take him away. Now, I don't know, I don't know how, you know, big Mary was, how strong she was. We don't know how big or, or Jesus was, but that's probably something beyond her capability to really do, to find a body and to be able to carry it away by herself without any help. She is distraught, and it's coming through in the text. As I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, she, her grief, her sorrow has gone on to autopilot, and it's, dis, it's been disoriented to her. It's disorienting. And I think that, and I was thinking to myself, that's the answer. That's why Jesus, why, well, that's why she's still weeping outside the tomb. You know, the, the, the commentators are befuddled by this, why she's still weeping. But sometimes theologians like that, they get so into the text that they just forget all about what human experience is like. And I think this is very similar to our experience. Have you ever been in the kind of sorrow that distorts your judgment and distorts reality? Have you ever been so upset about something that it just colors everything else and just makes the whole world look like it's falling apart? When I was, when we first married Denise, um, she was, I was upset about something and she had said, you know, how upset are you about this? And I said, like, what, a scale of one to ten? And she's like, yeah, scale of one to ten. And I said, ten, ten being I lock myself in a room for three days and don't want to eat. And she like, just went sheet white. She was like, she didn't even know <laughs> that people could get that upset. I tend to be more on the depressed side. And so for my, my reality, and I was actually being gracious. My actual ten is way, way worse than that, right? <laughs> But there's, I know, and maybe some of you who experience depression along with me, maybe this is more real, maybe not, but maybe this is something that everybody can relate to, but there can happen, some things can happen that are so bad that it makes everything seem bad. I'm, doing, I'm going through it right now. There's a, I'm having a, there's a, a serious problem uh, that is, is causing me grief and it is causing me to then uh, worry about it so much that everything gets colored by it. And then, because I'm so worried about it, my mind starts to project out what's going to happen, and everything that happens seems to be bad. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And then I start to believe that those things are already real, and I get upset about those things, and then things just start spiraling out of control until I am in a sorrow that has a mind of its own almost, an autopilot that it's so hard to get out of. Could anybody relate to that? Amen? How about this? Have you ever been in the kind of sorrow 
where knowing the right answers actually just makes everything worse? Oh, you know what I'm saying? To know the right answers, to know what you're supposed to do, to know what you're supposed to feel like, to have all the scripture verses memorized and it still doesn't seem to help, it almost makes it worse because then you're like, well, I know what to do and I can't do it. What do I, now what do you do? What do you do if you know what to do and you can't do it? Then what? You know, we had friends that had lost a child and, and um, they said the most painful thing that they experienced in the count and people trying to comfort them was people reading Romans 8.28 to them. It's true. All things are, you know, all, 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 God works all things for good uh, to his people, for those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And that's a truth. That's a true thing. Uh, but that right answer ends up being the most painful thing in the world in the midst of that kind of sorrow. Totally unhelpful. Huh. Well, this is what I want you to see in this. I want you to see the response of the angels and the response of Jesus, both, both to Mary. You know what they say to her? They say, both of them start by saying, Woman, why are you weeping? You know what they don't? What they don't say is, Woman, Snap out of it. They don't say, woman, you know the truth. Why don't you pull yourself up? Think through this and get over it. They don't say that. There's no reprimand to her. There's no reprimand to her sadness. I think in the church sometimes, I just heard a story recently. Somebody was telling me about how they had a friend who's experiencing like a real season of spiritual dryness. She feels really weak in the faith. She's a withering faith. And, and, and her church family is basically saying, snap out of it. Basically, they're saying, snap out of it. Think your way through this. Think about all your blessings, and that should make you happy. And if you don't, then they're saying to her, if you can't snap out of it, this might mean that you're not really a Christian. Ow. Can you imagine that? Sometimes we do that in the church. Angels didn't. Jesus didn't. What they did was they gave her patience and compassion. That question, woman, why are you weeping? It's really kind of a rhetorical question. They're saying in light of the resurrection, why are you weeping? But it's a question that gives her space, gives her patience, gives her time to be with her grief. Um, gives her space for the truth to slowly come up and be dealt with, right? And so all the befuddled commentators uh, and all the wrong-headed churches that are parts of the church, our church, we are the church, not pointing fingers, it's just us. The reason they get this wrong is because they assume two things. They assume, one, that sorrow should be eliminated immediately and that's that. And we just know that's not true. We live in a fallen world as fallen creatures and sometimes sorrow is the normal. But the worst part is they also assume that we can reason our way through sorrow, that we should be able to uh, think our way through it. But that's just not how earthly sorrow is. 
It's not what the Bible says it is. And sometimes, a lot of times, we need more than just our own reason to work ourselves through it. We need something more than that. We need Jesus. And that brings us to point two. Jesus comes to us. Point two, Jesus comes to us. Look at uh, verse 14. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. There's all kind of places after the resurrection where the disciples, they don't recognize Jesus. And there's no one standard answer as to why that is. Sometimes it says he appeared in a different form. Sometimes it says um, that he was masked from them. Sometimes it just doesn't say at all. It just says, no one, you know, in John chapter 21, next chapter of John, it says, they, no one dared ask him who he was because they knew he was the Lord, even though they didn't recognize him. And so we don't know why that is. There's all kinds of guesses as to why it is here that she sees Jesus, she thinks he's a gardener, she asks him a question, and she has no idea who he is. And they're all kind of guesses. It was, they, some people say it, well, it was dark, some people say she was crying, trying to give all these natural explanations for why it might be that she didn't know him, but he spoke to her, right? You think she knew his voice? If I was blindfolded, if it was dark, if I was covered in tears, and my wife, Nisa, came in out, and, and I didn't see her, but she said, Rob, why are you crying? I would know who she was. So it's got to be something more than that. I know her voice. Mary knew Jesus' voice. So what is, what is it that makes her recognize Jesus? Jesus asks another question after he says, woman, why are you weeping? He follows that up by saying, whom are you seeking? And I imagine Mary in her younger days might have had some different answers for that. Maybe even some of the other apostles here and now would have had would we say maybe Jesus plus fame, Jesus plus fortune, but Mary who loved Jesus, Mary who Jesus had pulled her out of such misery and sin and death that she adored him. She had gone, she was at the place, Jesus had led her to the state of heart where all she wants is, she just wants Jesus and that's it. She wants any part of him that she can still have. She's grasping at straws just wanting anything she could possibly get. The whole of her desires focused on that. I just want Jesus. I just want Jesus, and that's it. And then, this is why I think she recognizes him. Because he calls her by name. He says, Mary. Just like he promised. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, he says the sheep will hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. They recognize him because he calls us. And he's really, in that verse, he is quoting a verse from Isaiah 43 where God is saying to his people, Fear not, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by name. Look, you are mine. 
He called her by name, the same way he calls us by name. That's why we're here. That's why we believe. Not because we thought through problems, not because we're so smart, not because we are able to marshal our reason to think through the big questions of life and death and who God is and who we are, what our problem is and what our solution is, but because the Bible says Jesus came to us in our sorrow and called us by name. And so look carefully. This is a picture. This is a picture. It's a picture not of Mary thinking through and pulling herself up out of her sorrow. It's a picture that Jesus has come to her, that he's led her to himself, really, and that he has revealed himself to her. And in such a way that it has made, it makes everything else pale in comparison. And, f- and for the Christian, this is enough. The knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of his call on us, the knowledge that we belong to him, the knowledge of his revelation to us, it's enough. Whatever else is happening in life, it's a layer that can be peeled back. But this is foundation. This is core. Who we are, the core of our existence, the core of reality is we belong to Christ. And nothing can change that. That's the solid foundation upon which everything rests for us. Can you imagine Mary's response? I mean, we see it. What does she do? She literally jumps on him. You read the text, there's a story, there's another story about Alexander the Great that uses the same words where Alexander, he was shot with arrows. His best friends think he's been killed in battle. They see him and they're so overwhelmed with joy that he's still alive. They literally just jump on him and tackle him. It's the same thing that happened here. Mary has literally got up and jumped on Jesus and given him a giant hug and she is absolutely refusing to let him go. She is so overwhelmed with joy and the turnaround was just like that that she just grabs onto him as hard as she can, right? Sometimes my kids do that to me. I come home at night, they haven't seen me all day and they run up up the stairs and they all jump on me from like five stairs up and I'm supposed to catch them, like hopefully catch them one at a time as they come at me, three of them, two hands. I haven't missed yet. And they grab onto me and they hold onto me and they squeeze me and they say, I'm never going to let you go. What do they mean by that? What they mean is that they love me so much that they never want me to let them go. They're telling me by that. They're saying, never, ever let me go. And that's what Mary's saying in this revelation of who Jesus is and that Jesus is alive. You know, sometimes we lose sight of Jesus because we've drawn away from him in the Christian life. That's a real, that's a reality. It's true, that happens. Sometimes we can get spiritually dry um, because we're running to other things instead of Christ for our, for our joy. But there's also times in our life when we, uh, we can temporarily lose sight of Jesus because we're changing. He's becoming bigger than we thought he was. He's becoming more than we thought he was. The things that we wanted from him are changing and the promises that he's making to us become bigger and more beautiful and in those transitions we can have a sense that we're losing, 
we're losing contact with him, but he comes back in a bigger form, in a better form, with better promises. And that is what's happening with Mary right now. She hasn't lost hold of Christ, but he has changed. She wants things to be exactly the same, but they're not. Things are going to change, and they're going to change for the better. That brings us to the last point, point three. Jesus comes to us with unbreakable promises of everlasting joy. Look at verse 17, 18. Now Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said all these things to her. She is holding on to Jesus with everything she's got, and she wants, with all her might, I'll guarantee she's thinking things are going to go back to normal now. Things are going to go back to the way they were. We're going to go back to Galilee. We're going to have, we're going to hang out. He's going to teach. But Brian talked about last week about um, great illustration of the members in concentrate, people that were in concentration camps, and they set their hope a lot of times on things going back to normal. But so much had changed that when they got out, it, became, it wasn't enough. And some people even ended up committing suicide after surviving all of that. Because what used to be, what well, just wasn't the same anymore. We experience this a lot, counseling people who've lost everything in drug addiction. When they become sober again, their minds are set. They just want everything to be the way it was. But most times, God has a very different plan. God saves you out of addiction, saves you out of that kind of disease and destruction. Oftentimes there's a whole new life that's waiting for you on the other side that's better and more beautiful, but it can be a scary transition into that thing. And that's what's happening with Jesus and with Mary. There's so many crazy suggestions about why Jesus says, don't cling to me, if you read through the books. Here, some people said, uh, some, one person said, his wounds were still sore. Come on. I mean, just purely rationalistic thought, right? Somebody here, another one, uh, was his, he was a dead body and it was defiling. Totally missing the point. Uh, a Roman Catholic expositor said that because Mary had missed the Last Supper, she was upset and was now begging the Lord for Holy Communion. Talk about theologically driven exegesis, right? And we, that can happen to us too, so... A good warning. Winner, the winner? Jesus was naked and it was inappropriate. Man, talk about missing the point, you know? I don't know. I, I, uh, it, there was one commentator who just laid it out so clearly that it made everything else, just all the other speculations, vanish into smoke. He's saying, it's real simple. He's saying, basically, um, he's saying, you don't have to cling to me. I'm not going away yet, but I will be soon, and that's a very good thing. He's saying, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I'm not going anywhere just yet, but go tell my brothers that I am ascending. I am going to go, but it's not going to be bad. 
It's not what you think it's going to be. You know, Mary's deepest, deepest desire is that Jesus would never let her go. And his answer to her is, I won't, but it's going to look different than what you think. And this is where, this is where Jesus tells us what to do when we get overwhelmed. When we get trapped or locked into that kind of sorrow or locked into some kind of grief that can go on autopilot or we get locked into the kind of some sort of sorrow or suffering that we feel will never end, it colors everything in our world to the, when even the right answers make everything worse. What do we do? This is where he tells us, whether it's small, whether it's big, Jesus answers Mary's request uh, to never let her go and ours not by telling her what to do. That's where everybody goes wrong. They say, this is what you got to do. Here's your 10-step list. Here's your three-step list. And all of that assumes that reason, rational power and the, the power of our own heart and soul can lift us up out of despair. And that's not always true. So Jesus does not tell her what to do. Instead, he tells her what he has just accomplished for us. Listen. This is where he says it. He says, go to my brothers. First time he says that word about the disciples. What's changed? They've now been adopted as sons and they are all brothers. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. In the past, Jesus has talked, spoken differently. He's always said, my God. He's always said, my father. And the Pharisees even said, your God, your father, talking about somebody else. But now it's different. He is including the disciples in the idea that his God is our God, that his father is now our father. Something has been accomplished. This is, what's changed is that this is covenantal language. Covenant is an oath that God makes and seals it in blood. It's a promise that he makes to us. This is God's promise to us in in covenantal language, uh, promise language, oath language from the Old Testament. The most basic form of covenantal language was when God would say, and they shall be my people and I shall be their God. All over the Old Testament, it says that about the affecting, the completing of God's covenant and salvation, bringing his people into relationship with himself. Uh, And here's what happened. The cross... Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection has sealed that promise, the promise made for thousands of years, the promise that we have written down in black and white, the promise that Jesus completed with a historic act that we know is true, meaning that all of that is true. We are now his people and he is now our God. We belong to him, that this veil of tears is temporary, that even in the midst of it, it is not core, it's layer. It's shallow. Our suffering is shallow on top of the core of eternal life that we now possess. It is a historic, objective, real thing that we can look at in history rather than looking at ourselves, looking at what we can do. Instead, we don't do that. We look outside of what Jesus has done. He's affected and completed. Let me read one of the prophecies. This is, this is Hosea chapter 
2. You know, Hosea, the story of Hosea, he marries an unfaithful wife, and God says that the wife represents Israel, and he proclaims, and she, they have children. He says, name one of your kids, not my people. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad sign when God tells you to name your kid, not my people. Name your other kid, no mercy. <laughs> no, that's a bad sign. God says, name your kid, no mercy, trouble. But at the end of the book, uh, he says this. He says, when the promises come through, he says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day, the resurrection, the coming of the Lord, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth, the earth shall answer the grains, the wine and the oil, they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. He's looking at Mary and he's saying, hey, that's what just happened. cosmic, historic salvation. Now here's what all that means. It means that when we're overwhelmed, we don't have to look to our own subjective feelings. We don't have to look to our own limited power as evidence that we're okay. We don't have to assume that something is wrong with us. We can acknowledge that we are fallen creatures in a fallen world and that sometimes sorrow is the norm. And if someone tries to say to you, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't be sorrowful, you can say, that's not what Jesus says. Instead, we can look to these unbreakable promises of everlasting joy that God has made to us, that he has given us, that these things are not made up. They've been written in prophecy for thousands of years. They are objective outside of us. They are true no matter how we feel. The Bible says this every day no matter how you wake up feeling in the morning. For us, sorrow is not the last word. It is not the ultimate word. The last word for us is the resurrection of the dead into the fulfillment of God's unbreakable promises for us. And he cannot lie. He has promised that he has betrothed us in righteousness and he will never let you go. Amen? Amen. Jesus comes to us in our earthly sorrow with unbreakable promises of everlasting joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises to us. There is a lot of sorrow in the world, and we thank you, Lord, that your promises are bigger than our sorrow. We thank you that your promises are bigger and more real than our feelings. Lord, we pray that in the midst of the hardship of life, Lord, throughout all of life, whether we're suffering, whether we're in in grief, whether there's problems in our life that's causing us 
to make everything seem bad. Lord, we pray that you would help us to let go of all the things that we think you have to give us to make things okay and just be quiet with you, realize that you are with us, realize that your promises are true for us no matter how we feel. Lord, help us get to the place, Lord, where you are enough for us. So we would know that everything we need you will provide for us, Lord. And help us, Lord. Help us to do that as we wait for that final day when you come and take us home with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.